Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that was great right off the bat. I'm impressed. Man, have you felt the presence of God this morning with us? Amen. Amen. Isn't it a joy to worship God and to be in his presence? Isn't it a comfort to know that just like Jesus promised, every time two or three of us gather in his name, that he is there with us, that he manifests himself differently. He's with us all the time. He never leaves us. But when we gather in his name, he moves in a significant way. This morning, we are finishing off our elephant hunting series. I'm really excited about this topic. I think this is extremely relevant for our world right now. You might be thinking, hey, we talked about all this stuff. We had a panel, and then we're doing another conversation. Yes, because we've talked about all of these topics, and every single thing we've covered is something people divide over. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Every topic that we've covered this far is something people divide over. People draw lines in the sand over. People say us and them over. So the right way, I think, for us to end this series is with a conversation about division and a conversation about unity. So we're going to be in John chapter 13 this morning. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up there. John chapter 13. If you remember, if you've been part of this series for a while, you remember there are a couple of agreements that we need to make before each of these messages, before each of these conversations. Number one is that even if this topic doesn't affect me, the truth is still for me. So rather than sitting here thinking about my friend, I need to text a link to the podcast too so they can hear this sermon. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to put the truth into my heart where I need it. Amen? The second agreement is a little harder. The second agreement is that the word of God gets my yes before I even know what it says. If we're followers of Jesus, what God says gets our yes because obedience is the mark of maturity, not knowledge. Obedience is the mark of maturity. So that doesn't mean you agree with what I say, but that means that if you hear something this morning or really in any message, anytime someone's teaching the word, that you say, ah, I didn't like that. That made me uncomfortable. I'm going to go back to the word and make sure that that's actually what the word says. And if that actually is through prayer and study and maybe even talking with other people, if that actually is what the Bible says, then yes, because the word of God gets my yes, because I follow King Jesus. Amen? All right. John chapter 13, starting in verse 31, it says this. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence that is with us and that is faithful. We thank you that, like your word says, you inhabit the praises of your people. And this morning, once again, as we often pray, we want to hear from you. Let my thoughts and ideas be forgotten. Let your word be what's remembered. We love you, Jesus. Amen. 
But since we're talking about division and unity this morning, I figured we would start the conversation with something everybody can agree on. So we're going to start by talking about politics, Catholics, and abortion. (laughs) Sound good? In, I think it was 1994, Bill Clinton was president. And as presidents do, he hosted a prayer breakfast. And at this specific prayer breakfast, the keynote speaker was none other than Mother Teresa. Now, feisty is not a word that would have come to my mind often when I think of Mother Teresa, but the more I learn about her, the more I think that is the exact right word to describe Mother Teresa. Because I don't know if she just didn't keep up with American politics or if she just didn't care at all, probably the latter. But she used her platform to, in no uncertain terms, speak against abortion. After she got done, President Clinton got up behind her and said, in more words, he said, there's probably no one that I disagree with more on this topic than Mother Teresa. And then he said, but there's no one whose life is a better argument. In this text we just read, Jesus is in the middle of the moments that would lead ultimately to his death, resurrection, and his ascension. He has just led his disciples through the Last Supper that we're going to celebrate later today, as you probably noticed, by once again the annoying little cups in the seats. And he washed his disciples' feet, the role of the lowest servant. He got down literally on his hands and knees and washed the disgusting sandal-clad feet of men who walked in dirt roads where animals pooped. That's not an exaggeration. There's a reason why it was the lowest, it was the lowest job of the lowest servant. Jesus did that to his disciples. And then Judas gets up to go betray Jesus, to go turn Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver to his death. Jesus starts talking to his disciples about how he'll be glorified. It's worth noting that he's talking about the cross. He's talking about the death and resurrection. Why? Because the glory of God is most revealed in the love that he has, the sacrificial love that he has for us. And he starts talking about, it's almost like Jesus, you know, you can imagine kind of a a down tone in his voice. He says, I'm leaving soon. And where I'm going, you can't come. And it's almost like there's a break in the train of thought. It's almost like whiplash. He's, going, he's talking about leaving, and then he says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples. Now, the emphasis on my is important because this was an extremely religious culture. In other words, everybody around the disciples, everybody in this town believed that they were the people of God. Not only that, Rabbi or teacher, as Jesus was often called, was a role commonly filled in society that Jesus filled. In other words, they weren't the only disciples walking around. There were other people who had committed themselves to other teachers who were students of other ways. Not only in the Jewish world, but if you went out into the Greco-Roman world around them, then there would have been people who had committed themselves to philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. There would have been people who had committed themselves to things like Stoicism, eventually Gnosticism. There would have been people who had committed themselves to the worship of Caesar because they believed literally Caesar was the son of God. There were people who were committing themselves to all kinds of different spiritual experiences and cults and religions. In other words, there were people all over who had committed themselves to an ideology or a way of thinking or a way of living because they thought it held the keys to life. So Jesus didn't need the disciples to be defined by the fact they followed someone. 
It was about who they were following. And up until this point, they were identified by proximity. In other words, everywhere they went, Jesus was there with them. It was obvious who their teacher was. If they went to the next town over and they said, I'm a disciple of Jesus, there would have been someone who said, oh, yeah, he healed my uncle's neighbor last month. I know Jesus. Proximity, presence defined them. But Jesus was about to leave. He was giving them an argument for their cause. He was saying that what will define what you teach, what will prove what you believe, is the argument of your life. He's given them a jersey so we know what team they're on. He's given them a logo to define the company, whatever analogy you want to use. He says, this is how everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. One another. Now, it doesn't take a statistician to know that our world isn't very good at loving one another right now. We divide over everything we can find to divide over. We divide over politics and masks and vaccines and sports teams and companies and all kinds of things. I mean, we are in a season right now where some people don't even like to be in the room with people who aren't Clemson fans. It'll be very soon when I don't want to be in the room with UNC fans, so that's fair. I'm a Duke fan, and I'm very proud of it. We divide over everything. In fact, it's more common to define ourselves by who we're not than by who we are. Maybe the greatest tragedy of all is that it's not really that different, at least not to the public, in the world of Christians. Because we divide over politics and over masks and over vaccines and over theology and over worship styles, over everything else we can think of. Well, I'm not like them. We're not that kind of church. I grew up in a, uh, well, I went to late high school, early college, and what was probably kind of an interesting um, movement in modern church history. A lot of you, if you grew up in church and you're familiar with this, um, there was really probably in 2008, there were a lot of people who were probably under the age of 35 who's like, all of a sudden, all of a sudden they noticed that Jesus spent a whole lot of time with poor people. And they noticed that Jesus spent a whole lot of time with prostitutes and with thieves and with the outcasts. And we just became enamored by this. It was, I mean, we'd heard it preached a thousand times, but for some reason it was like we'd never heard it before. It was like, Jesus, Jesus loved the dirty and the left out and the outcast. That's who people, Jesus spent his time with. And then we looked at churches that had stained glass and emerald green carpet and pews, and we we're like, those kind of people wouldn't even be able to walk in here. They'd make a mess. Like, what are we doing? This Churches where people wear suits and where everything's formal, people who are lost and hurting, they're not going to feel comfortable here. And it became this movement and this cry where it's like, we've got to go out. We've got to go into the margins. And a lot of beautiful stuff came out of it. Emphasis on human trafficking and missions work and house churches and all kinds of stuff came out of this. It was beautiful. A lot of us posted edgy articles on our MySpace pages and we're, bare, we're barefoot for like two days until we realized our feet hurt and it was cold and did all kinds of edgy stuff. A lot of times it was just value signaling. We would go on a missions trip, take a picture with somebody, and then come back. You know, we got really good at loving the outcast. We got really, really good at loving the people on the margins. Got really good at volunteering in soup kitchens. Here's the thing. It's absolutely true that if you study the life of Jesus, you know 
that he teaches us to love the outcast. He teaches us to love the prostitutes and thieves and prisoners and the people on the margins. But that's not what he called our jersey. That's not the thing he said would be the argument that proves our teaching. He said the way you love one another. Anyone who's been a teenager or been around a teenager knows why that's hard. It's a lot easier to love people who aren't in your house and people that are like you somewhere else than it is to love people you have to share life with, love people that correct you and hold you to account or that you disagree with while you're defining yourself. We were really good at loving the outcasts. You know who we weren't really good at loving? At? loving? The church down the road that still sang hymns. The pastor that still preached in a suit. Churches that we felt like were too traditional or too liturgical. I mean, it didn't, we never thought to ask and find out that the deacon of that church has been volunteering at a soup kitchen every Monday for 20 years. Uh, we just read the cover of the book and decided what it said. It's funny how it transitioned, at least for me. Maybe this didn't happen to you guys at all, but at least for me. And if you're here and you didn't grow up in the church, then congratulations, you didn't have to go through all of this. I'm so happy for you. Um, I'm glad you're here now. Um, it started off as, well, those traditional people. We, ah, we don't like them. We don't love them. And then it became, well, it's those churches that have, have $100,000 light, lighting displays and got smoke machines and all that. And then it became, well, churches that's bands, those bands sound like you too. That can't be worship. But then we also didn't like churches whose bands didn't sound that good either. It, was, it had to be right in the middle. And then it was, we don't like churches in buildings. Then it was like, we don't like celebrity pastors. Then it was like, we don't like Christians who spend too much money on their clothes. I've met a lot of millennials who have spent so much time not liking other Christians, they don't have many people left to like. It's funny when you don't accept people because they're not accepting enough, when you don't love people because they're not loving enough. It's an interesting irony. That you would love one another. Now, something's happened in our culture right now. And this isn't the first time it's happened because Satan is not creative. He uses the same tactics over and over and over again. But there are certain things in culture, certain things that happen that kind of exacerbate one lie over the other. And here's something that's happened recently. We have come to believe that the truth is always loving. Now, anybody who's ever had a friend come to you and say, hey, I want to show you my new business idea, art project, or song I'm writing, knows that's not true because you've thought, I really hope it's good because I want to tell them the truth and I don't want to be mean. Love is always truthful, but the truth isn't always loving. Let me say that one more time. Love is always truthful, but the truth isn't always loving. But we live in a world right now where we'll say stuff like, well, I'm just being real. I'm just telling you what I think. I've got a right to an opinion, don't I? I'm just speaking the truth, man. We found out that it is a lot easier to get claps and amens and fire emojis on Instagram and retweets with a condescending, sarcastic zinger against people we disagree with than it is with a humble, loving, kind word of encouragement or rebuke. Love is always truthful, but the truth isn't always loving. 
If you love someone, you always speak the truth, but you care a lot about how you say it. And we're not like them. Those people, those charismatics probably don't even read the Bible. Those reformed people probably don't even love people. Those Wesleyans, we don't even know about them. They're crazy. Mainline people have given up on Jesus. And maybe some of them in each camp are what we think they are. Um, A couple months ago, I was on Facebook. Yes, I still have a Facebook. I think about deleting it like every month, and I never do. But I was on Facebook, and I found a guy that apparently I've been friends with since we were in college. Um, We weren't really close, but we graduated together at the same time. And we graduated in the same major. We were both youth ministry majors. We were both like very generic, skinny, brown-headed white people with tattoos who used to be in metal bands, like just a very, very much a stereotype. And uh, we, we had a lot of the same opinions back in the day, right? We came from the same place. And I saw, I was like, I wonder what Luke's up to today. I wonder what he's doing. And I realized Luke planted a church. So I decided to look at the church. And I don't mean this to make a joke in any way. The, the church that Luke planted is as close as you could be to the opposite of the fold. They planted this church in 2018. They only sing hymns or psalms or exact scripture. They only have a piano or maybe a cello. He preaches in a suit And he preaches verse by verse, explaining what each verse means, expositionally. And here's the thing. My first thought was, how did that happen? My second thought was, that guy probably thinks he's the only person who knows what the Bible says. That guy, man, he's one of those just like condescending, hyper-reformed, traditional people who thinks we're all selling out the gospel with our work, with our guitars and, you know, whatever, sweaters when we're preaching. It shows my own stereotypes, condescension. And somehow, just by the power of the Holy Spirit, honestly, I believe that's what it was, something came over my mind and I decided to be curious and not condescending. And I realized I still had his number from some group project nine years ago. And I called him and he still had the same number. And we talked for an hour. And I called him and I said, hey, Luke, uh, I'm not trying to pick a fight with you or debate with you or anything like that. I'm just really curious. We, we started in a really similar place, but where we are in, in life right now in ministry is really, really different. Can you tell me a little bit of your story? And once again, I was expecting him to say, well, I finally read my Bible. I heard this story about someone who, who had a tear-stained Bible he couldn't read anymore because he had become so overwhelmed with the grace of God in the face of our sin that he had wept reading the book of Romans. He said he kept the Bible, but he can't use it anymore. He can't read the pages. And someone who was just so captivated by the glory of God that he said anything that would make it about us or our skills rather than the glory of God, we don't want to do. Everything, God is so good. He was so deeply in love with Jesus and he said it with such humility. And it was so obvious over the phone that this man loves Jesus and he loves the church and he loves the word of God. And he has actually been willing to plant a church in 2018 that would probably not get him a whole lot of likes or follows on Instagram. That would probably hurt his influence in broader culture because he was just so deeply committed to what he believed scripture was. And then he said, I don't think I'm, I'm the only one that's right. 
I don't think the way we do it's right. He said, I've got people that I trust and that I respect and that I love who deeply disagree with me. And then he said, I'm so excited about the fold. If I'm ever in Greenville, I want to come to the fold and see what God's doing there. Something crazy happens when you decide to be curious and not condescending, and you realize that most people aren't the stereotypes we believe about them. Almost no one is. The, the Greek word here for love is agape, and it's a derivative or a variation of agape. And if you grew up in youth group like I did, you probably had a T-shirt at some point that said agape on it or went to a youth camp where agape was the theme or listened to a band that had an album called agape. Um, We've heard it preached a lot as this is, this is the love of Jesus on the cross, unconditional brotherly love, complete sacrifice. That's what it is, and that is what it is. But it can also be translated, these words here can also be translated fondness, affection, benevolence. You know, one of the things that's happened in this, uh, this idea that we have where, the, where we can just say what's true and it's always loving is that we believe that love is something that I don't have to like somebody to do. We'll say stuff like, well, I love them, but I don't like them. I love them, but I just can't stand them. I mean, I don't want them to go to hell, so I love them. But we could read this text as Jesus saying, a new command I give you, show affection for one another the way I have shown affection to you. Everyone will know you're my disciples by how fond you are of one another by how much you like one another. It's almost like Jesus knew that the disciples weren't all gonna get along all the time. It's almost like Jesus knew that there were some things in scripture that God could have made black and white, but he didn't. Because love, love is not revealed in significance if there's no conflict. It is easy to be fond of people I don't disagree with. But love matters when I love someone I've got tension with. Love matters when I love someone I'm in conflict with. Love matters when there's someone that if it wasn't for Jesus, we would not be friends. But Jesus, so I just, I'm so fond of them. See, there are times as Christians where we have to speak the truth and the truth is not always comfortable. There are times when we have to say this book or this leader or this church or this movement or this person in my fold group is doing something ungodly or they're saying something that's not faithful to scripture. The problem is usually we want to say it to make ourselves look right and make them look wrong. We want the zinger. We don't thank God for all of the things he has done through the people we disagree with. This is the thing. The Holy Spirit is in all believers, even if I disagree with them on the minor things. Now, there are things we can't disagree on. <laughs> we have to have Jesus in common. We need to have creedal Christianity in common. We need to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the only way to heaven, the authority of Scripture. We've got to agree on those things. There are a lot of things that the Holy Spirit is still in that person. And we can be fond of them. Honestly, even if we would never go to their church. Can I tell you something? I left that conversation with Luke thinking, I do not want to work on the same team as that guy. I still deeply disagree with his theology. Honestly, I think his theology is a little... Even though I would never attend it every week, I'm so ex I'm s I love those people because they love Jesus. Now, you might be here thinking, CJ, I don't know a lot about 
like theology and church politics and like I don't follow preachers and sneakers on Instagram, so I'm not sure what all you're referencing right here. What does this matter to me? Church is full of hypocrites because you and I are in it. Yes, our hearts are being continually formed like Christ. Yes, we are growing. Yes, we sin hopefully less next week than we did last week because we are being formed like Christ. But if you are in a church long enough, any church, someone is going to hurt you. Someone is going to disagree with you. Someone's going to disagree with you on an issue that you are very passionate about. It's not, a, it's not a gospel issue, but man, it's something you're passionate about. You know what? I would just guess in this room, we've got people on every spectrum. In fact, I know we've got people that are on diverse spectrums in this room. Because I know a lot of stories in this room. If you're in the church long enough, a decision's going to get made you disagree with. And there are times, hear me say this, there are times when we have to humbly prayerfully, carefully say, that was a toxic environment, that was unhealthy, it was, not, it was not healthy spiritually for me to be in that place anymore, so I'm going to a new place, and that's perfectly acceptable, and that's fine. We do that prayerfully in love, with affection for what God's doing in those people. Praise the Lord for that decision. But the reality is, we're going to get hurt. We're going to disagree. That's why love is so significant. The question is not just, can we love the charismatic, reformed, Baptist, Wesleyan, Lutheran, whatever, celebrity pastor, YouTube famous pastor that we can't stand, whatever. The question is, can we love the anti-vaxxer, pro-mask, liberal Trump train, whatever person sitting in the seat next to us? Can we be fond of the person that said something last week that just really offended us? And just trust that they were in a really tough spot, and they didn't mean it. Because most people aren't the stereotypes we believe about them. Can we have affection for one another? Can we say, I really, really disagree with that person's stance on the whole whatever issue. But man, I love them. Can we even be willing to look at someone and say, hey, I think you're being prideful, and I want to call you out. But can we do it because we just love that person so much, and we like that person so much that we want to see God's best for them? and not want to be proven right. The world around us is continually claiming that unity is uniformity. But unity, and for the record, this text is technically about love, and our topic is technically unity. You've probably seen that you can't have one without the other now. I could find hundreds probably texts in scripture that talk about the need for unity like Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul said I have destroyed the barrier that divided and made one building out of the two <laughs> or where Jesus prayed about his followers that we would be one as he is one or about how the people of Israel were 12 distinct tribes with distinct leaders and distinct cultures that were unified as the people of God unity is cover to cover throughout the bible but unity is not achieved by uniformity. It is achieved by love. Unity is not achieved by uniformity. It is achieved by love. By love for one another. Fondness, affection, benevolence, kindness, genuinely liking one another. Uh, Andy Stanley, a pastor in Atlanta, says, as Christians, we don't have time to not like anyone. There's too much on the line. 
the God, people are dying and they're going to die apart from God. We don't have time to not like anyone. But as we bring this all to a close, here's the truth that underlies all of this. Most of us who struggle with unity are not trying to be divisive. Your friend or uncle or whatever on, on Facebook is probably not trying to be divisive. Most of us who have a hard time loving or accepting or being kind to someone we disagree with, it's because somewhere along the way we've convinced ourselves we have to prove that we're right. We have to earn something. We have to show that we deserve something. There's something in us that can't just trust the Holy Spirit in somebody else. The secret to unity is first remembering that we are deeply loved. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And if you do not remember that you are caught up in a love that will never let you go, that the God of the universe is affectionate towards you. He's fond of you. He doesn't just love you in some distant ideological idea of love where he feels like he has to save you, but he actually likes you and wants to spend time with you. He is fond of you. He thinks your laugh is quirky, and he thinks the shows that you like are funny, and he likes the, the music that you like. He likes you. You are caught up in a love that will never let you go. And no, I'm not saying that he likes sin, that he's proud of all the bad things we do. No, I'm saying he loves us unconditionally and deeply. That even though we have done things that deeply harm ourselves and one another, even though we have done things that have hurt his heart, he still wants to spend time with us because he just likes you so much. Until you realize that you are caught up in a love that will never let you go, you will always have a hard time extending that love to other people. This is the last thing we have to see in this story. It's that Jesus' conversation about love, it started with the statement when he had gone. He was Judas. He had just gotten up to go sell Jesus to his enemies. And it ends with the affirmation that Peter is about to deny Jesus. That when things get tough, Peter's going to act like he didn't know him. And Jesus had just washed both of their feet. He had just sat down at the table with them, laughed and told stories with them. If you think the Last Supper was just a whole bunch of like Gregorian chants and seriousness, then you probably don't know Jesus very well. We all have a little bit of betrayal and denial in us. But we are loved deeply. Why? Because Jesus loves us. So we're going to end with communion this morning. As we take communion this morning, we are going to remember, we're going to taste and smell and experience the deep truth that you are loved so you can love. You are loved so you can share love. This is the jersey. This is the argument that proves our teaching. This is how they will know we are followers of Jesus, that we know so deeply we are loved by God that we can love one another. Let's take the elements, the little plastic, crinkly, annoying cup next to you. 
as you open the top and we all just acknowledge that we can hear a crinkling noise and it's awkward. On the night Christ was betrayed, the same night we just read about, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. As you do, remember you are loved. In the same way, he took the cup. After giving thanks, he says, this is the blood of a new covenant poured out for the salvation of many. Every time you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. As you do, remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for you and the people you disagree with and the people you don't like. We are loved, so we can love. Let's pray. Jesus, make us a community of people so deeply and utterly overwhelmed with your love for us, so profoundly influenced by your goodness that we cannot help but share that love and goodness with the people around us. Make us a community of people that refuse the petty arguments, that refuse to fall into the trap over dividing over things that are not gospel. Let us be people who can confidently and lovingly say, I disagree but we can do so with affection and fondness for one another, with kindness in our hearts. Let the world know that the fold is full of your disciples, not just disciples of Christian culture, not disciples of church ideals, but disciples of you, Jesus. And let it be known by the fact that not only do we love one another in these walls and in these seats, but we love the churches down the road. We love the churches in this city. We love the churches in this country. We love your people. Even when we disagree, we love your people. Let everyone know we are your disciples, Jesus, because we love one another the way you have loved us. And we will give you every ounce of glory and praise because your love is so perfectly shown to us in your death and resurrection. And you are so glorified in the way you love us and in our love for you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.